0: If you don't know that much about quantum computing, there's no need to feel bad. You are far from alone. In November of 2019, Jack Hittery, who is affiliated with Google and is the author of Quantum Computing, an Applied Approach, said that he believed only 800 people in the world have the expertise needed to truly understand how to apply quantum algorithms. Some of those people work at SEEK, a quantum computing company headquartered in Elmsford, New York, with facilities in London and Naples, Italy. Seek's approach to building a quantum computer is quite unique and offers a roadmap for scalable, application-based quantum computers, which can be leveraged to solve some of the world's greatest challenges. This is a series of interviews published by that company. In this episode, Seek Creative Director Frederick Carlstrom speaks to Seek CEO John Levy about the importance of collaboration across platforms. If you want to know more about Seek and the work they do to make computers for the quantum age, you can visit them at seek.com now the conversation with SEEK CEO and co-founder John Levy.
1: So when did you take over the space? So this place actually was originally going to be part of Hypris's, I don't know, I think the RF unit of Hypris was going to move over here. Okay. And we decided to spin it out. They decided they didn't need the space and we were looking for space. We thought, wait a minute. It's here. Let's start. And so they had done a certain amount of work mostly on the demolition side, yeah. but not in terms of, you know, designing anything that was useful for us. So we actually had to take down some of the things that they had done early on and to make it much more useful for what we're doing. Yeah. But what, and what was it here before? Was it like IBM stuff, or do, do we know? No, I don't know what it was. I have <laughs> no idea. So... It was like maybe bounce. You, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I really it's don't. It's funny
2: because have... the architecture is so like specific and brutalistic and. and oh crazy. yeah,
1: I mean, this is like you know, it's the worst of 1970s <laughs> architecture. Yeah. Right, well, it'll be back. Don't yeah, no, 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 no. Of course, it'll come back. And in yeah. the fact, <laughs> they're actually beginning to kind of. Restore some of the, yeah. you know, the, like the exterior of some of these buildings, and at some point it's going to become, you know, fashionable again. <laughs> it
2: goes we might cycle. be old by that. It goes on cycle.
1: So it's divided into different sections. What happens in this? In this one? So the idea for this is, is that you know, obviously we have an, an entry area, but we really wanted to have a very open kind of space. And where we could have a large meeting room. And and in fact, this was gonna be divided into like three conference rooms or something like that. And I said, no, let's have a big open space where we can not only have customers, but we can have large company meetings. And where everybody can be here and we could be connected via video conferencing to places like our UK facility and our Italian facility. So the idea was to make it feel like it was big and open. And that people could draw on the glass, yeah. and they could draw on the, you know, which the, they do, the, yeah. the, the boards and everything, yeah. and and so that you came in here and it felt. You know, modern and open and collaborative, et cetera.
2: So that's what this
1: area was designed
2: for. Different people who work here. There's obviously you do testing,
1: you do design. How do they sort of spread okay. out? So let me explain. We have two facilities. Yeah. This facility is designed really for, um, you know, people like me, of which there aren't yeah. very many, <laughs> right, fortunately. And then we have a designers, you know, our, our chip designers, our circuit designers, our quantum or qubit designers. Yeah. And we have testing. And so, this facility is really about testing. And then across the street at 175 is our chip foundry. And it's exclusively that. Right. So you, know, you literally have to go across the street and we have a little bit of a sneaker net yeah. to be able to go back and forth between the two, the two buildings, but they're close to each other. Yeah. And by the way, there are some people who actually span both places. Like, uh-huh. there are people who are working on some of the packaging of our chips. And then they'll come here and they want to load those chips up into some of our probes and into our testing facilities, yeah. and they'll actually get results. And so they go back and forth, but not so many.
2: So, so in here you do, this is like the big meetings and... and
1: yeah, right. And, and, you know, we wanted to be able to have a place that made it really easy for people to have meetings and to be connected to our other facilities. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because we have locations here in New York in the US Mm -hmm. and in Italy and in the UK. And we do that because it enables us to hire people really easily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, quantum computing is a global phenomenon. There aren't that many people who can do it. So being able to hire in those places is great. And also it enables us to have different kinds of facilities and relationships academic relationships, commercial relationships, government relationships, so we can leverage that. But if we can't figure out how to stitch it all together, then it's not gonna work. The weird part about COVID and all that is we've gotten really used to using video. So being able to have a big open conference room with lots of video capability is one way that we're trying to make sure that the whole company kind of coheres.
2: Yeah,
1: of course so when was it started you spun out and tell me about that so okay so oleg and i and then a few other people Mm. were at a company called hypers and i was the chair oleg was the cto and about 2017 we did a strategic planning process where we tried to figure out each different part of what hypers was and could be Mm. and it became clear to us that there was a kind of separation between the work that's being done at Hyperus for the US government, it's very RF centered, and really that's the market. And then the work that was being done in high speed and quantum computing at the chip boundary, which felt a lot more commercial. And so we said, look, at some point, in order to grow each business, they kind of have to be decoupled mm. so that each one could pursue Disentangled, it, if you will. Disentangled, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, that, so that they could each kind of realize their potential. And so we decided to put a plan together and went to the board. Again, I was the chair of the board, but mm. this is coming out of the strategic planning process. And then in April of 2019, we actually did the formal, you know, separation of the companies, sp- split them, Um, had, you know, employees go one and and to the other, uh, split the facilities. We began to attract venture capital and really charted a course that was quite separate. And that became SEEK.
2: Mm. Tell me about SEEK. What is it? What does it stand for?
1: Right. So, you know, the name is an interesting one because some people pronounce it CQC because it's S-E-E-Q-C. I never thought of it that way. I always thought of it as either superconductive or scalable, that's the S, right. energy efficient, because that's core to what we do, quantum computing. Right. And for a while, we were writing it in one way, so it sounded like it was C, Q, C, and another, I always thought of it as C, because to me, part of the idea was that we were seeking, we were on a journey. We were on an exploration, and, and then we were interviewing somebody the other day, and she said, you know, I talk to all these people, and they all sound like seekers to me, and I love that idea, because it really does convey this notion of exploration, and it's what we're doing. You know, we are exploring. We are going from the classical digital world, you know, where the whole world is sort of organized on that principle, to the quantum world. That is an amazing exploration. And so, you know, that's the journey we're on. That's what we're seeking. So we are scalable, energy-efficient quantum computing. That's
2: awesome. You're not an engineer by training, but do you get... uh...
1: Here's the thing, if I walk up to one of these boards, I can almost never understand what what somebody wrote. On the other hand, the people who are here are all great teachers. And they will take me through everything I need to know. And I may not be able to be a designer. As a child, I was a circuit designer. I designed uh, electronic circuits and I built them. It was my hobby as a kid, but this is at a whole other level. So for me, you know, I kind of walk in and I'm, I'm always intrigued by what I'm seeing. I look at it almost, you know, I try to figure it out architecturally or artistically to try to figure out what it is that people were trying to express.
2: So how did you get started? Because you've been doing this for a little bit. Like, how did you get, get into, <laughs> <laughs> into technology? How did you end up here? Oh, man. <laughs> like, how far back do you want to go? Did you have a dream about doing this as a kid? You mentioned that you were building your own chips as a kid. Like, did I wasn't it start, building did chips. Start, I was building circuits. Circuits, sorry, sorry, Because yeah. people, like, nobody was but, building chips. Right, then, right sorry, sorry, know? circuits. You were building um, circuits.
1: Did you have a dream even as a child? So, you know, it's really funny. There are two thoughts about this. One is, when I was first learning to read, one of the things that I discovered Where there were these books, and I remember there was one called I think it was called A Boy's First Book of Electronics, and then they had a boy's second book of electronics. They were always boys; they were gendered, right? Just like, but anyway, and the cool part of this was that I could read a book, but I could read what they were saying, and then I could build what they were saying. Uh If they were talking about you know wrapping you know toilet paper with a coil and being able to build you know like some sort of a circuit with that or even just a switch and you could turn a light off and on you know when you're 5 or 6 years old it is totally like magic to be able to do that mm-hmm. and it transformed for me at least what reading was because reading was about doing reading was about making reading was about designing it wasn't just about the enjoyment of reading and, and the knowledge, for sure, but it was knowledge I could put and I always loved that. So so that's, you know, one aspect of things. And and I just ended up building lots and lots of things and I loved doing that. I also, as a really little kid, used to read like nonsense books. What's a nonsense book? Well, there was this one book called, I think it was called Upside Downtown, where everything was backwards, upside down, inside out. And somehow or other, emotionally, that connected with me, because it seemed to explain, I don't know, in some way, it connected to my view of the world. I'm not sure how, but it did. And you know, when I think about those two things, and connect to a kind of a reality that maybe you're not experiencing on a day-to-day life but a, a reality you can imagine and combining that with building electronic circuits. Well, what are we doing here building a quantum computing company? And that's when I was like five or six years old. So there's that. The other part is that I have always been an entrepreneur and when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old I started businesses. When I was in high school I had a business I was making all kinds of leather belts and wallets and purses and things like that. I ran fairs when I was in college, I started a business. And so there was always this other part. My, you know, all of my relatives were all entrepreneurs, not in the tech way, but you know, in their own way, yeah. right? In real estate or doing things like that. And so it's that marriage of entrepreneurialism with this idea of of building things and particularly technical things. So it seemed to be a pretty you know, straightforward progression from a sensibility, although you know, lots of zigs and zags.
2: So what do you say, at a, you know, you're at a dinner party and someone asks what you do? Like, How do you explain quantum to someone who isn't a physicist? The, the way
1: I always talk about quantum computing is that I root it in the discussion around what regular computing is. Because you know, most people don't actually think about it. Right? They take out their phone and they'll say, well, that's a computer that's in my pocket, and that's cool, and it works. And they don't really think about much about how it works and what the underlying principles are. So I, I almost always talk about the world of classical computing as really organized around switches, about things going off and on. You know, We can look at a light switch and that's a great metaphor for how we can actually construct a modern computing device. And what's interesting is is that we figured out how to translate almost everything. I mean, think about, you know, whether it's from the early days of things like word processing and building spreadsheets to doing really complex simulations of whatever. The fact is, it's all mediated through the same set of switches, right? Only now we have billions of them. And, you know, that's scaling, you know, linearly and growing all the time. And we're used to that so i start there and then i say okay imagine however that i want to understand something like some system of nature a plant take a leaf go into what that leaf is and it's made up of molecules and atoms and subatomic particles and suddenly if you think about what those things are made of they're not made of little light switches little switches they're made up of these subatomic and atomic particles And so imagine for a moment that you could build a computer where the metaphor wasn't a switch, but the metaphor was an artificial atom. Well, suddenly that artificial atom has a different relationship to that leaf, that little biological piece Mm -hmm. that we were looking at compared to what a switch is. And if I wanted to simulate that, would I be better off simulating it with a switch Mm -hmm. or with an artificial atom, the thing itself? And when we begin to think about quantum computing, that's what we're doing. We are essentially building up a system using these artificial atoms called quantum bits or qubits, and we're building them within a computer, but it's as if we are actually building the thing itself. And we're able to do it in a really complex way that gives us lots of degrees of freedom for design work and for understanding the essence of the thing itself. We can apply it well beyond you know, biological and, uh, and you know, natural systems to think about you know, man-made systems, like you know, trading and, and the optimization for logistics and scheduling and things like that. So it's a new metaphor for computing based on a core technology that's rooted in quantum mechanics, this other form of physics that we may not feel like we're observing every day the way we do with Newtonian physics, but in fact is governing everything in our our world, and particularly in our natural world. So what we're trying to do is to build a computer that relates to that. Well, that is a massive change. It's a massive change. And that's why I go back to this issue around being at Seek and being a seeker. We're on that journey right. to make that transition, that transformation.
2: Building this thing here, the quantum, obviously this is part of a part of a massive stack. What are all the parts that have right. to be part of, of a functioning? Going back to the, kind of the metaphor of a classic computer, we all have one at home or in our pocket. Is that
1: what's gonna happen? We're gonna walk around with a quantum computer in my pocket? How's I- that? I don't know. You know, it's always hard to know from, you know, kind of a form factor of what it is that you're going to be able to carry, and it may well be that you have a regular computer that has a cloud connection to a quantum computer, and that's all you need. So I I don't know whether or not there's going to be a requirement to have quantum computing capability locally, if you will, so much as you'll have it you know, from a connectivity perspective. But it's also important to know that here at Seek, we are not actually building the full stack. So what do I mean by full stack? I'm talking about going from the quantum layer, literally the qubits that we're talking about, all the way up to the application layer. And we are not doing that. We're just not that capable. We're not very good at software. It's something that we're expanding, mostly on our firmware side more than software. And when that enables us to connect to software, but we ourselves are not developing operating systems and applications, et cetera. What we are developing are going from the qubit layer all the way into the system layer, which is about readout, control, reset, co-processing, quantum error correction, all the way up to firmware, so that then we would have hooks into the, you know, kind of the operating system and application layer. So we're doing all of the, you know, kind of think of it as the hardware platform side of it, but with connectivity to, you know, all of the quantum operating systems and quantum applications that anybody could develop these facilities, we've we've looked around a little bit. Who works here? What are the types of people that work here? So there's a combination of people. And and I'm just, let's just stick with the technical side of things. So we have people who are quantum engineers, right? Who are designing circuits. We have quantum engineers who in many respects have a theoretical basis and an experimental basis of their background, who are working on testing those circuits. We also have what are called single flux quantum engineers. So these are circuit designers of a very particular kind because we're used to building circuits, you know, like when, when you get a, a chip that you've probably seen before, uh, that's made by Intel or TSMC or some company like that, they are almost always CMOS circuits. It's a conventional ambient temperature processor, memory device, et cetera, that's built out of transistors, et cetera. That's not what we're building. We're building devices that are based on superconductive electronics. So they're operating at cold temperature. They're built with materials that have that exhibit superconductive performance at, say, four Kelvin and below, so in some cases at millikelvin. And they're operating at tremendous speed, almost zero resistance, and orders of magnitude lower power. And so our systems don't even have transistors. We have things called Josephson junctions. And our circuits are designed around a particular instantiation of this called single-flux quantum, the co-inventor of whom, which is Oleg Mukhanov, here our CTO, my co-founder, who I've been working with for the last 10 years. And so we have SFQ designers, and we have SFQ test engineers, and then we have all the facilities to support them.
2: So in the world of technology, there's obviously venture capital and there's software mm-hmm. and this happens quickly and it's three months interval like right. you're building a company that's you know and, and I'm sure you get asked this question all the time about like what is the commercial when is the scale and when when are we you know right how do you kind of think about that in terms of from a patient's perspective how do you kind of keep your eye on the on the ball which may be 10 years away and, and kind of
1: how do you think about that it's true of kind of all deep tech investing in general, but when you're working on building you know, a fundamental platform where we understand the science pretty well and we're now working on, you know, on the, the development, the engineering aspects of it, you have, to have, you, have to, you have to understand that, you have to be able to communicate that and set expectation of both potential customers as well as your investors and your employees. I mean, everybody needs to be kind of on lockstep about that. And if people have unreal expectations, I think that really is where you get into problems. And, you know, quantum computing represents a real paradigm shift in computing. And so the opportunities are huge. And so part of the the problem with that is you have to kind of, you know, burst your own balloon. You have to reduce the hype and make sure that people are rooted in a better sense of the reality of it and the uncertainty of it knowing that if you can stay with it long enough this is going to present you know a really once in a lifetime opportunity to introduce a whole new computing paradigm and you know we don't get that opportunity as i say it's it is really once in a lifetime certainly for me And you know, growing up and seeing the whole explosion of digital technology has been fantastic, but imagine we could reset the game and we have the ability to do that technically and we can build a platform around that and we can build a business around that. Well, that's a really extraordinary opportunity and that's why I'm here and why everyone else is here.
2: You told me the other day, I asked you the question, why this work is important to you from a a personal level.
1: So again, it goes back to this idea of we mediate our existence from a technical perspective with, you know, something as simple as a light switch or as a switch, an on-off switch. And somehow or other, that seems to me to be incredibly primitive compared to what we understand about the structure of nature. And, you know, we are stewards of this planet, after all. Whether we want to be or not, we are. You know, we do things, I think, in a very unthinking and un... Knowing sort of fashion, and if we can develop the tools that enable us to get closer to a, a deeper understanding of what the underlying systems are of life and of biological systems, you know, in our planet, that somehow or other it should give us the ability to be able to be better stewards of that. And it may seem, it may just seem like, oh, it's one computer versus another, but it's not. It's a fundamental view of understanding our world in a highly different way, in a quantum way. And if we can find a way to, to channel that, you know, we can think about new drugs and new you know, materials and, and climate models and, and all kinds of things like that that are hugely impactful. You know, we only have so much time individually on the planet and doing things that are consequential, I think are, you know, one of the most important things we can discover about, you know, what our capabilities are. And so I honestly feel privileged to be able to do this. And I think everybody here has that same sense of mission around the importance of what we're doing.
2: So let's go through the letters in the acronym SEEK, Scalable Energy Efficient Quantum Computing. Tell us about that and why is scaling so important?
1: It's really interesting. I often like to look at, you know, kind of the history of technology and how things evolve and and then what happens to them. So, so if we think about going, going back into the 19, well, you can go back into the 1830s with Charles Babbage, but, but if you go you know, into the modern age, if you will, and you look at digital computers that were made, say in the 1940s, coming out of World War II, they were experimental devices, they were digital, they didn't have you know, things like transistors, they, weren't, they didn't have that kind of core solid state capability, and they were, certainly weren't chip scale. They were highly error prone, but they worked. And what they really were, were kind of proof of concepts that looked a little bit like labware, but it pointed to a future. But it took the development of the transistor, the integrated circuit, the microprocessor, and then system engineering to build something that was actually practical and useful. And so it was a combination of scaling that made that happen. Now, you know, some people will think that scaling in the case of say a classical computer is just the number of transistors. But it's not. It's around connectivity, it's around power, it's around error, it's around noise, it's around cost, it's around complexity, it's around latency. There's so many parameters that you have to consider when you think about scaling. So here we are now in the you know kind of the early part if you will of the 21st century and we now have quantum computers that work. But they're, they kind of look like labware too. They have cables everywhere, and they're expensive to build, they're really complex, they're really error-prone, etc. And so we need to think about how do we scale them from all of those dimensions. And we've got to think about them, not just from, you know, some people say, well, it's just, you know, qubits, or it's just, you know, it's just gate speed, or it's coherence time, or it's something like that. It's everything. And so what we're trying to address is that fundamental problem of scaling in all dimensions. And that's what our architecture is built around. So that's scaling. It's scaling
2: because of cost. Obviously, if it scales, cost goes down. It has sure. to do with latency, cables, RF <laughs> interference, yeah. complexity, space, energy and heat, fidelity and error, error correction, connectivity, design, manufacturing, maintenance, system, uptime. So that's just some of the ways, some of the things you need in order to scale.
1: And you need all of those things. It's like, you can't just go from, well, we've solved the problem of fill in the blank. Right, so somebody could say, for example, it costs somewhere between $1,000 and $5,000 for a particular kind of cable, a special kind of cable that goes from very low temperature to ambient temperature. When I mean very low temperature, I mean like colder than the temperature of space. So really cold temperature, well, that imposes a certain kind of requirement, and that kind of cable is expensive. It's also, it has problems sometimes. There, there are actually failures in some of those things, particularly when, uh, at the connector points. Well, somebody could say, well, we are working on that and solving that problem. Well, that's great, but it doesn't fundamentally alter the equation of scalability writ large for a quantum system. It just helps to resolve it in, let's call it, an incremental way. So we're thinking we have to think more fundamentally than that if we're thinking about scaling in a in a more holistic sense.
2: So I felt very strongly coming into this company how little I know about a lot of the things. You know, I know almost nothing about chemistry. I know very little about physics. I know don't know much about material uh, sciences, uh, biology, or computer science. You know, it just. It just grows on you do you ever feel that way that you're in this room with amazingly smart people and just a realization how little we actually know
1: i think part of it is to a embrace the idea that i can't know all of those things no question i'm forgetting just me no one right. can and two is saying that they're to limit what my expertise is and then say look, there are other people that do this, know this and do this a whole lot better. Let's talk to them, let's bring them in, let's partner with them, let's learn from them. Because you're right, this is, you know, we can talk a lot about SFQ readout and control of a super, you know, superconducting qubit quantum computer, and, and we can all here go pretty deep on that. But when we start talking about, you know, a particular algorithm for, for quantum chemistry, Well, that's just not what we do or know. However, we do and know companies that are great at that. And so, you know, there's very much a notion here of A, focusing and sticking to our knitting, and B, collaboration. I mean, a lot of collaboration. We collaborate with companies. We collaborate with academic institutions. You know, you visited Chalmers in in Sweden, but we're doing work with the University of Maryland. We've done work with with Syracuse and with, with other groups. And we're doing something with, you know, upstate in Albany. And then we collaborate with governments so we're working with you know Innovate UK we're working with the department of energy we're working with the, you know Air Force research lab we're working with in Europe with with a number of consortia and so you know it's it's really about building out that collaborative infrastructure uh, and learning from each other.
2: Is that typical? Because obviously technology, and there's patents, and there's secrecy, and there's, you know, because you seem like seems like a very collaborative place. Like, has right. that always been your thing? You've always been a collaborative man?
1: You know, it's really a balance between about having deep expertise in a very narrow area that we hope is, you know, hi- highly leverageable and important, and making sure that we're really, really protected on that and that we're considered to be kind of the world leaders in that area and reaching out and collaborating with other people. This is an area as I mentioned before where people are still working out the science of it, it's still evolving. And so, you know, we're constantly reading papers and in fact every Tuesday we have internally somebody presents a paper that they've read that they think is, you know, important for what we're doing so that we can continuously learn. And sometimes, if it's so important, we'll actually talk to those people and set up some form of collaboration. Because we know that that's how we have to do it. This is not something that's going to be done by any one company. This is, you know, quantum computing. It's so funny. Technology is often, and particularly in the venture capital world, thought of as kind of like a winner-take-all idea, right? Or maybe there again it's a duopoly or something like that. And with quantum computing, it is an entire ecosystem there are going to be chip companies and memory companies and system companies and by the way various kinds of system companies and operating system companies and application companies and you know networking companies and and it's going to go on and on who make the cables people who make the cables people who make the digital you know, dilution refrigerators people who are making you know test equipment i'm telling you it is an entire ecosystem and we all need to work together. You know, for example, a dilution refrigerator, you can go out and buy a dilution refrigerator from you know, one of a couple of companies. But the fact is, is that we are developing a system that has very different requirements. In fact, it imposes fewer requirements on the dilution refrigerator side. So we wanna simplify it, whereas other companies wanna make them you know, bigger and better and more complex. And so we need to collaborate with those dilution refrigerator companies who are trying to figure out what they should be building. Well, what are they building for us? And then what are they building for the companies that need the you know, biggest, baddest dilution refrigerators on the planet? So there's, there's a lot of collaboration that's required to make this work. And again, we're not full stack. So by definition, we have to collaborate with operating systems companies, and application developers, for sure.
2: We talked about what the S stands for. Let's talk about the E, energy efficient. The double E. The double E, exactly. Right. So we talked about scalable, we talked about superconducting, I think we understand, the energy efficient. Let's talk about that a little bit. You mentioned yeah. that it was on, it's on a macro level and on a system level. Can we, can we talk about that?
1: Yeah, so let's just talk about you know, energy efficiency and how we think about it. So one way to think about quantum computing is to think about The number of states that are available, the zeros and ones that are available to you when you're actually doing, you know, calculations and and when you're trying to scale the system. What's interesting about quantum systems compared to classical systems, classical systems, they scale linearly. So for example, if you're Intel and you're trying to build a chip, and let's say it starts off with 10 billion transistors. Uh, and you want to double the power of it, roughly speaking, you need to build out 20 billion transistors, right? So it, it scales linearly. Quantum computers, by contrast, scale exponentially. And therefore, if we think about a quantum computer that has, let's just say let's say 500 qubits, uh, and you, you do the math on that, where it's you know 2 to the 500th, that number of states is greater than all the states that are available to you in all the classical data centers and and classical computers on the planet combined. The number is just, you know, astoundingly large, and that's just a function of scaling exponentially. So if you could, in fact, run all of your computers as quantum computers, which, by the way, is not the case, right? There are lots and lots of things that you would do on a classical computer that you would not do on a quantum computer, for sure. But the fact is, is that you could build, in theory, quantum computer that would have, let's call it 500 qubits, that would occupy a space the size of this conference room compared to all the data centers and all the computers in the world combined. And imagine for a moment the amount of, of power that you would save. So what does it take to run all those data centers? I've seen anything from 3 to 5% of all electrical capacity on the planet to do it. So imagine for a moment you could run something that's more powerful, potentially, than that in a room this size. So that's the, if you will, the macro view of energy efficiency. By contrast, quantum computers scale exponentially. So what's that mean? So the way that we think about it is that the number of states that are available to you equals two to the nth power, where n equals the number of qubits. So let's just say for a moment that we had a, a, a 500 qubit quantum computer. Well, that means that you have two to the 500th number of states that are available to you, which is greater than all the data centers and all the computers in the world combined. You could actually build such a computer. I mean, if you could do it right now, it would probably take up less space than this conference room. And imagine, and and we could power it with, you know, whatever is powered in, you know, a small office building, let's say. I mean, if you wanted to build an exascale classical computer, just one, it would take a nuclear power plant the size of Fukushima to run that. But, you know, I think that it takes something like three to 5% of all the world's electrical power to power our data centers. So just from that perspective, from a macro perspective, Quantum computers, again, though they don't, we can't do, you know, even simple arithmetic on a quantum computer. You wouldn't do it that way. You'd do it on a classical computer. But for the category of problems we can deal with, it's massively, at least potentially so, energy efficient. But the other aspect of energy efficiency that we really focus on here at C is really on the system level, the micro level. And that's, a really important part, and it, and it actually goes hand in hand with scaling. So today, the way that quantum computers are, are read out and controlled is with a series of microwave pulses. And microwave pulses are analog, but they're highly energetic, and therefore they transmit a lot of heat. There's a lot of power and a lot of heat. And heat is, you know, when you these qubits have to be kept at very, very cold temperature. I mean, this is, you know, at, say, 15, 20, maybe even colder, millikelvin. So this is, you know, colder than the temperature of space. And it's fine when you have a small number of qubits that you're trying to control by using these microwave pulses, which, again, are energetic and are heat. But when you want to begin to scale up, the problem is, is that you're flooding the system with more and more energy or heat which helps to destabilize the very qubits that you're trying to keep you know, constant at a very low temperature. And so you're in this battle of, I want to scale up, but to do it, I have to put more energy and heat into the system. So what are we doing? Instead of using microwave pulses, we're using something called single flux pulses, which are naturally quantized digital pulses that operate at orders of magnitude lower power, therefore lower heat. And what that enables us to do is to to use many, many more of these pulses, which, by the way, are operating at picosecond speed. So they're incredibly fast to be able to control the same kind of qubits that, say, a microwave based system, uh, a more traditional design would do. But again, it's not going to scale. There's a physicist in in England uh, named Peter Knight. The way that he refers to this is he talks about it as um, as boiling the fridge. That when you're trying to scale up by using microwaves by flooding it with heat you're boiling the fridge and i think that's what we're trying to avoid so this idea around energy efficiency is really core to our system design and it's built into our underlying technology of single flux quantum pulses as being the way that we're doing it and then lastly we're doing it not by having to go from ambient temperature down to cold temperature, but we're doing it with these multi-chip modules where our control chips, our readout and control chips, are sitting right on top of our qubit chips. So everything is kept cold and at the same temperature, and we have a lot more connectivity between these these two structures.
0: Thanks for listening. For more of these conversations, go to wherever you get your podcasts. Search Conversations for the Quantum Age and hit subscribe. You can learn more about SEEK and the work they do by going to SEEK.com. That's S-E-E-Q-C dot This conversation was recorded at SEEK's headquarters in Elmsford, New York. The series is produced by SEEK creative director Fredrik Hallstrom, who also did the interview. It was edited and sound engineered by Badia Shehab. The title music was composed by Anders Ochregren, using sounds recorded at the SEEK chip foundry in Elmsford, New York. My name is Tyler McLean. See you next time.